In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes when you work on a sermon uh, in the close proximity of a major national event, you're faced with something of a quandary. On one hand, the beauty of the lectionary is that preachers can't just preach on whatever they want. The text you get is the text you get. It gives the worship service a certain sense of detachment, that God is bigger and more important than any of what is going on around us, that this space is truly a heavenly sanctuary from temporary worldly chaos. But sometimes it feels irresponsible not to preach about what is going on in the real world. If the Venn diagram of church and world never intersect, then what's the point? Why talk about what God is saying to us through his word if his word doesn't speak to what's going on in our lives? I guess one solution might be to find the passage that we wish the sermon was on, uh, go into the All Souls Sermon Archives and listen to it, shameless plug, allsouls.com slash sermons, allsouls.com slash podcast, in case you want to do that. Anyways, thankfully our election falls right in the middle of this kingdom season, and I hope that this morning we find ourselves having our textual cake and eating it too, hearing from God about the tumult of our current political season while maybe being delivered from it at the same time. Each reading this morning has someone responding to catastrophe. Our reading from Job, like many of our favorite passages from Old Testament prophetic and wisdom literature, sounds like the kind of thing you put on top of a serene picture of a lake in Photoshop and then share it with your friends on Facebook, you know, like if you agree. But the thing is that picture of Lake Placid comes at a price. You can't get to, I know my Redeemer lives, without first going through the verses that precede it. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones, etc., etc. We do Job a significant disservice when we ignore the depths of his grief and jump immediately to his hope. For 35 chapters, Job and his friends dispute with one another about why he has faced this calamity, why he has been stricken down. Job questions God, Job questions his friends, and it is in the midst of that anguish that he says he knows that his Redeemer lives and that he'll be vindicated when he faces God and things will be put to right. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he tells them that the day of the Lord has not yet come. Now, when we hear that term, day of the Lord, we shouldn't immediately think only of all the things we associate with the second coming of Christ or the end of the world. Day of the Lord is cataclysmic language about an event ushered in by God to upset the order of things. Just like many Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled once before Jesus and then again more fully with Jesus' first coming, Paul's day of the Lord has partial fulfillments before Jesus' second coming, one significant event being the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70. See, the Thessalonians think that the final cataclysm has come because they're seeing an increase in persecution and lawlessness among the Roman emperors. And there are some who are saying, this is it, God's judgment is here, the end is near, Jesus will return, draw us all to himself, and it's all going to be over. And Paul says, things are bad, but it's going to get even worse. This is not the final judgment. This calamity, he says, is just a foretaste of what is to come. Really uplifting language. And then we have Jesus' rhetorical opponents in Luke 20, the Sadducees. 
We don't know a great deal about them, except they were probably a sort of priestly aristocratic class that didn't believe in the resurrection, as the text tells us. Jews generally believed in the resurrection of the dead and expected it, but the Sadducees probably considered that doctrine an innovation of tradition. They believed they were being more true to the text by insisting on prioritizing the Pentateuch over other Old Testament books. So they wanted to confound Jesus as this rabbi who taught about the hope of the resurrection by posing a riddle to show that the resurrection was nonsensical, to sort of say, look at this example that we can all easily imagine. It does not fit within your paradigm of the resurrection. The resurrection is silly to believe in. The context for all of our readings this morning is people looking around and finding hopelessness, chaos, or persecution. Job and the Thessalonians and the Jews living under Roman occupation are living in worlds that are unfair, unjust. They are mistreated and maligned, and things seem to be getting worse rather than better. And the Sadducees try to trivialize and dismiss the life of the world to come, that bit of hope you might have in the midst of persecution. Now, it shouldn't be too difficult to think about how this might apply to our own lives, although I guess for Chicago residents, it's a little bit more difficult now that there's a cup victory. But as an Indians fan, I really stepped into the sadness this week. Many seem to long for November 9th when ballots are cast and campaigning is done with. At midnight on Tuesday, this will all be over. But if we're honest, there are rifts that have been torn that will not heal simply with the declaration of a president-elect. There are systemic problems that have been exposed in the last several months that we can't just forget once ballots are cast. Not to mention ongoing wars and conflicts around the world with no end in sight. The title of my sermon this morning is, Everything is Awful and No One is Happy. It's written in big letters on the front. So what's our response? Well, we take our first cue from Paul, who rejoices in faithful people in Thessalonica. He encourages them, hold fast to the truth that you have been taught. And I think when Paul says to hold fast, he wants the Thessalonians to do more than just acknowledge true things that they were taught, but instead to continue in worship and in love. You hold fast to God not just by repeating the creed over and over and over again while the world burns around you. True, it is because of the truth of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we do what we do and that we are who we are. But you hold fast to God by following in Christ's example and loving one another. What an antidote to the poison of this contentious season it would be if we refuse to accept the categories and divisions that are supposed to exist and sacrificially love one another. It doesn't matter who wins on Tuesday, there will always be a need for the people of God to look to their neighbors and show compassion and love. And what a model to the world if we look to the people in our own community, this gathered group of people who are very convinced that they ought to vote in the complete opposite way that we might. Um, And if you think that everybody in this room is going to vote the same way, uh, you don't spend enough time on Facebook. I I suppose that's not a sentence that's ever actually true, but just look at it. What a better antidote to everyone else to say, look, we, we hate each other's candidates just as much as you do, except we love one another and we care about one another. More than this political season can possibly divide us. How better to defy the despair of fretting about who will get to run the country and appoint Supreme Court justices than to come together and worship our king in the midst of a kingdom season? How better to refuse to consider the next four years as the pivotal moment in our lives than to say that the pivotal moment already happened 
In fact, we already participate in entitlement handouts every single week. This isn't a matter of detached disengagement, but reorienting our lives around a different calendar and a different ruler to let that notion inspire how we live. Because we know that while the storms rage around us, the one sitting on the throne has spoken raging storms into stillness. And when the kingdom life, the life of the world to come, doesn't seem to add up, when it looks as if things can't possibly work out the way God promises, we look at Jesus' rebuttal to the Sadducees. They can't understand how to make sense of the resurrection with seven brothers all married to the same woman, since she would have to be married to all of them. Jesus says, I reject your basic premise that the new life will be exactly like the old one. He even uses their own criteria of sticking with the Pentateuch against them, quoting Moses to show them that God is God of the living, not of the dead. Now, this passage has a lot to say about what we think about marriage and perhaps even what we think about marriage as the sum fulfillment of human relationships. But for this morning's purposes, what we get from this passage is that the resurrection will come and we can hope in it, and it won't be like the world is now. Now, I'm all about the kingdom of God here and now, and I think we're called to live out our lives as if the kingdom is coming. But we know there is still a final day of the Lord to come. And in that day, there are a whole host of things that will be radically changed. And we take hope in that. That the things that don't add up in this life will be changed and worked out in the next. That's why Job can follow up a litany of pain with the knowledge that he has a redeemer. After his skin has been destroyed, he will stand in his flesh in front of God and know that God will vindicate him. He knows he'll be able to speak to his redeemer who will argue for his case and he will be justified, found to be in the right. We don't sit through the absolute madness of our lives, vainly wishing for good things to happen. And we don't have to deny that the world around us groans and aches. We can hold fast to the truth to which we are called and continue to defy the powers of this world that grasp for power by worshiping our Lord and King who suffered at the hands of worldly power but rose victorious. We can continue to love those who are unlovable and work to take those who have been marginalized back into society and say that God loves them anyways and that he has no categories of, as our major candidates might say, losers or deplorables. God's only category is beloved, and that's our calling, is to show people that no matter how much we think they do not understand how this country works, or how the country should function, or what justice looks like, and we may be angry at people for wanting to advocate for something very different than what we imagine should be going forward. We can love people anyways, and we can take our mission as the church, which is the same today as it will be next week, to bring God's love to those who feel no love at all. Don't get me wrong, this election matters. I think, I think there is a right candidate to vote for, as I'm sure many of you do. But we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution that gets tax breaks, and I want to honor our side of the deal, and I won't be pitching for any candidate this morning. If you'd like to talk to me this afternoon, I'm very happy to have lots of words to say. <laughs> vote on Tuesday, though. Pray that you would vote for whomever would serve this country and this world best. Vote in your local elections and try and discern and do research and pray about who might help our county best. But don't pin your hopes on that path. Instead, look to our king and serve him first and foremost. Take comfort in the fact that we worship a God who was and is and is to come. Not everything hinges on this moment, which paradoxically frees us to do everything we can in this moment because our king has already secured victory 
and established a kingdom long before this country existed that will continue long after this country no longer exists. Tuesday is important, but the kingdom is more important. And our job as citizens of that kingdom, first and foremost, will not change before or after the election. Let me end with Paul's own words. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.